0: Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be here with you today to study the Word of God and to fellowship with you all. Grateful to see such a so many of you here, even in the middle of summer, in the middle of Ramadan. When alone, have you ever seen or experienced something that was so beautiful, so amazing, that you couldn't help but want to share that moment was someone that you loved, someone that was close to you. You know, this happened to me on a number of occasions, and one of those times was a couple of years ago, whenever I traveled to Germany for a conference. When the conference was over, me and a couple of other guys that were out there took some time to bike along the Rhine River and look at castles, something that I had wanted, wanted to do ever since I was a little boy. It was an incredible experience. The scenery was beautiful and the food was good, but something was missing. Because every time I saw something amazing, I immediately thought, I wish my wife Katie was here right now to see this with me. I wanted her to know what it was like right there in that moment as I watched the sunset behind a 600-year-old castle as the, the waters of the Rhine flowed by on that beautiful summer evening, I had in my mind and heart a longing for the joy that we both would have in experiencing that moment together. I think that is what the Apostle John was feeling as he wrote this letter that we call 1 John. You can feel the longing coming off the page, nearly a feeling of just, he's almost ecstatic there in that moment that he's writing, He has a longing to share with those he is writing to the beautiful reality that he experienced, that he saw, that he heard, that he touched. And as we read the passage together, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, hear that longing, that desire in what he says. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There was something gripping John that he was trying to convey to the believers reading this letter. His eagerness seems to overflow right out of the book. John says that he is writing so that we would have fellowship with one another, that our fellowship is with God and His Son, and that he is writing so that together our joy may be complete. There are three questions I want to ask of the text in order to discover what John wants us to see. And then I want to close with a couple of brief applications. The first question I want to ask is, what is it that John heard, saw, and touched? What is it that he's so eager to share with us? Second, what is the basis of our fellowship with God? What is the basis of our fellowship with God? And third, what is the basis of our fellowship with each other? What is the basis of our fellowship with each other? And finally, in application, I want to view a couple of aspects of a life of full and complete joy. What what did John hear, see, and touch What is the reality that John wishes to share with his readers? At the time that John wrote this letter, we believe that he was a very old man who had endured much for the sake of proclaiming the word of life that he is writing about. John is doing this, is proclaiming as a result of having an encounter with truth. Truth that was jarring truth that was rock-solid, and truth that was life-altering. We find in Acts 4, many years before John wrote this letter, that he stood inside the temple in Jerusalem along with his fellow apostle Peter and declared to some of the most powerful men in Judea, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And now in his last years, John continues to make known what he had seen and heard and to call to witness not only his own word, but of the others who had experienced the same thing. What was so amazing about what they had encountered? What was it that he experienced that would cause a radical dedication to a life of suffering for the cause of telling others about it? As our passage shows us today, it was seeing, hearing, and feeling the eternal stepping into time. In verses 1 and 2 of our passage, John describes what he has encountered as having the following characteristics. It is eternal. It has a voice. It has a form. It is material. It can be touched. And then he calls it by two names, the word of life and eternal life. John had heard with his own ears the word of life. It is the word, this word of life through whom all things were made as he records in his gospel. He had touched that which was with the Father before the world was even formed. See, John is not writing about a vision here. He is writing about a historical fact. What John is bringing to the people is not a message about a new idea, a new philosophy, some subjective experience he had, or some paranormal encounter. This word of life that John brings, this eternal life that he is proclaiming is a man, flesh and blood, He is a person, and yet he is also eternal and the source of eternal life. John had been with Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Son of God in human flesh. John is likely writing this letter in the face of a form of false teaching springing up in the early church called Gnosticism. The Gnostics claimed that salvation was found in obtaining secret knowledge and they generally believed that Jesus was not human but an enlightening spirit in the appearance of a man. But what John is making clear is that he knows without a doubt that this word of life, this eternal life was flesh and blood. And the church would do well to listen to his testimony. Okay? This is John, the son of Zebedee, writing this letter. This is the disciple that Jesus loved. The one that rested his head on Jesus at the Last Supper. The one who cared for the mother of Jesus. The one who stood at the foot of the cross. This is John who saw the empty tomb and ate fish. By the Sea of Galilee, with the resurrected man from Nazareth, eternal life and flesh. John is crying out to us in this gospel that he wrote. I touched him, people. I saw him. He is real, I promise you. God stepped into time. God put on flesh. God talked to me. God ate with me. I saw his blood pouring down from a Roman cross. I saw him draw in his last agonizing breath and cry, It is finished. And three days later, I saw his tomb empty. I saw the eternal word by which you and I were created do that. I touched the one who now upholds and ordains my every moment. Is there any wonder that I would spend and be spent for the sake of making what I have seen and heard known? The eternal stepped literally into time. Why is it so important that we know this? We can find the answer in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wants his readers to share in the fellowship that he has with God, and John knows that in order to do that, we must have a right idea about who Christ, the God-man, is and what he did. This is all building together because it is only as we understand this that we understand how we have fellowship with God and we begin to understand how we have fellowship with each other. So our second point is, what is exactly the basis of our fellowship with God? John is saying to us, look, I am proclaiming what I have seen heard and touched to you so that you may have fellowship with us just as we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So what do the first two verses have to do with fellowship with God? Well, what is described in these verses is the very basis of our fellowship with God. And what is really significant are the names that John uses to describe who he is proclaiming. The word of life and the eternal life. Now to see how these names describe the means of our fellowship with God, I want us to look at a little bit of a history, a little bit of redemptive history. So that we can see and understand that something stands between mankind and fellowship with God. And we can see what is required to restore that fellowship. The creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that when God created man and woman, He created them good, without sin, and thus with eternal life. As long as they obeyed God, they would not incur the sentence of death, the wages of rebelling against a perfect, holy creator whose glory they were created to reflect. But as we know and experience daily, man did not remain sinless. Man disobeyed. They broke the one command that God had given them in the garden The command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so man and woman came to know right and wrong. And through sin, death entered into the world. And we all experience that to this day. According to Genesis 3.22 though, there was another tree in the garden. There's the tree of life. This tree had eternal life in it. And because God's justice demanded death, God drove Adam and Eve from the garden and placed there a cherubim, an angelic being with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. The fiery sword of God's perfect justice made death unavoidable. Eternal life, fellowship with God was now distant and unreachable for mankind Because of sin. But this wasn't the end. God had a plan to redeem a people for himself and to restore them to fellowship with him. And he would do it in a way that would not violate his perfect love and perfect justice. So several thousand years later, after man was cut off from eternal life, a promised baby was born in Bethlehem in Judea. A baby in whom was eternal life, Jesus Christ. Eternal life became flesh and blood that could be seen and heard and touched. But the fiery sword was still there. God's perfect holiness still blocked the path to come to, tr- to the tree of life. And this is why Christ came. The one who has eternal life in himself, the Son of God, placed himself under the blazing sword of God's justice on a Roman cross. He was broken and he was crushed and out was poured in his blood eternal life for all who would repent and believe in him. He died to open the way to eat ...of the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, eternal life had to come to us and become one of us... ...because the fiery sword of God's justice was separating us from it. The word of life had to become flesh... ...in order to destroy the proclamation of death declared against us. Any other religion or philosophy will tell you that you can attain eternal life by working for it, or you can just have it because God is not holy after all in their view. But all other religions fail to deal with the imposing sword of God's justice blocking the path to eternal life. It had to be the sinless eternal son of God who dealt with it, for the sacrifice of a mere man would only suffice for himself. There is an infinite barrier between God and man that requires an infinite sacrifice. Unbelieving friend here today, this may all sound strange and fantastical to you as you sit here today, but that is exactly why John is writing this and crying out, I saw eternal life. I touched eternal life. I heard the word of life. If you saw what I saw and heard what I heard, you would understand. I am writing to you so that you can hear him and see him and touch him. Don't try to get eternal life any other way than through the eternal life that came to us. If on your own terms, if in your own strength, you approach that cherubim marking the great divide between you and God, the flaming sword of God's just wrath will cut you down. But if you approach and you are covered in the blood, Of Jesus, the proof of the penalty of sin paid, the cherubim will lower his sword and he will joyfully allow you to pass by. The basis of our fellowship with God as a man, the basis of our fellowship with God is a real historical man, a real historical crucifixion and a real historical resurrection. Friends, as surely as I'm standing up here in front of you today, God in flesh hung on a cross and he suffered and he died to take away our sin. This is the message that John is wanting to convey. And this is the message that is the basis of our fellowship with God and with each other. What does this have to do with our fellowship with each other, Christians? As I mentioned earlier, it is apparent that John is writing this letter in part to combat false teaching. Likely this heresy called Gnosticism. Because of the absence of an address at the beginning of this letter, many scholars believe that John wrote this letter with the intention that it would be circulated to the churches all throughout the region A region and a time that saw the church being battered by false teachers arising from their midst. Our time is not any different. And whatever the teaching was that John was facing off against, he doesn't come out and call it by name. John wrote this as a timeless letter to the church. Because whatever the false teachings of our age are, this center remains. This word of life This eternal life was made manifest, which John and his fellow witnesses proclaimed. John is saying that this good news, this message of eternal life made manifest in Christ is the basis of our fellowship with each other. And he is warning against false teaching with passion because if we lose the message, we lose the fellowship. There are two things in this regard that I want us to consider. It is this message that John is proclaiming which creates our fellowship. Last week on CNN's belief blog, I read an article about a new trend in America. This trend is the establishment of godless churches. These churches have songs and a sermon But the people inside are committed atheists, or at least agnostics. Communities, as they are sometimes called, even get together for small group, and they meet on Sunday mornings. Is this the type of fellowship that John is talking about? People all over the place want community. We want community. We crave for fellowship around shared interests. So we have clubs for people who like poodles, for people who like Volkswagens, and for people who like public speaking. The fellowship that John is talking about does indeed require community, but community itself is not the fellowship that John is talking about. By saying that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, He is making this a very specific fellowship that is oriented around the gospel. The good news that God came to us who are far off in order to reconcile us to himself is what creates our fellowship with each other. As we repent and believe in this good news, we are brought into the family of God and thus into fellowship marked by the joy of sharing together this message of eternal life in Christ. The growth and maintenance of our fellowship depends on the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thus, if we lose the message, we lose our grounds for fellowship. There is a popular way of thinking a kind of Christian minimalism out there that says, if you want to have unified fellowship, then you need to get down to the bare bones of Christianity. Here at Redeemer, we preach the way we do, we do small groups the way we do, and we have 9 a.m. classes because we believe that is not true. I believe the Apostle John would agree, because we have his letter, one of the most practical yet theologically rich books in the entire Bible. And his purpose of writing this rich letter is so that we would have fellowship together. Dear friends, we grow in unity as we go deeper and higher and wider in the knowledge of God together. We grow in unity as we go deeper and higher and wider in the knowledge of God together. John is concerned about false teaching because he knows that we will not have fellowship together unless our fellowship centers around the word of life which he has seen and heard and touched. When I got back home from that trip to Germany I mentioned earlier, I did everything I could to give my wife a taste of what I had experienced. I told detailed stories. With excitement, I showed her pictures I had taken, trying to give her as accurate and full of a picture as I could of what I had seen and felt and heard. Imagine if I had decided that it would be best if I just got the important parts across. And I got back and I sat her down and I said, there was a castle there was a river. There was a village. There was food. Maybe in a sense I shared facts, but there was no fellowship. Okay? There was, there, was, she did, there was no encounter with what I had actually seen and experienced. There was no sharing in the beauty and splendor of it. If I had done that, I would have left her with a story full of blank spots, allowing her to fill it in with whatever she desired. The end product may contain a castle, a river, and a village, but it would not be the same experience, the same reality. Now imagine if we were to do that with the gospel displayed in Christ. Now listen, what what I'm not saying is that there are not basic foundational truths. There are, and if we miss those, we miss everything. But I am saying that there was always a richness and a depth of understanding to be pursued together. Our fellowship, beloved, becomes deeper and sweeter as our picture of the gospel becomes more vivid. Hear that together. Our fellowship together becomes deeper and sweeter as our picture of the gospel becomes more vivid. I would like to direct us to think now of some of the implications of missing this. First, if we cease striving together for deeper knowledge of what God has revealed, then we will inevitably fill in the blanks with our own thoughts. This, given enough time, means that we lose the gospel. Second, if we try to be doctrinal minimalist. We risk placing our own determination of what matters over the authority of Scripture. And then please listen, because this final risk is very real and is very deadly. If we assert what we think is essential over what the Bible says is essential, if we tamper with the word given to us, if we commit to being doctrinal minimalist, we risk losing the basis of our fellowship altogether, which means we lose the gospel, which means that we are left as basically a pagan fellowship worshiping a God that is our own fabrication and proclaiming a gospel that cannot save. A gospel that is just the skeleton is dead and immobile as skeletons tend to be. This is not the type of message that John is conveying. And I pray that it is never the message that we proclaim here or at Emmanuel Fujira. Because if we do not have fellowship that is rooted in rock solid, unmoving, God revealed fact. Rooted in the eternal life that became flesh. Then we miss out on verse 4 of our passage And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. It is my desire as well that our joy may be complete. So in the pursuit of full joy together, I want to leave you with a couple of applications. First of all, I want to encourage you To cultivate fellowship with the Father and the Son by knowing them more. I want to encourage you to cultivate fellowship with the Father and the Son by knowing them more. God has given us His Word, and Christ came in order that we may know and have fellowship with God. We are meant to pursue relationship. Fellowship with God by knowing Him through all that He has revealed in His Word. The richness of Scripture and the high cost of the incarnation is proof that we were never meant to live reductionist Christianity. We do not want lowest common denominator Christian lives and Christian fellowship any more than we want lowest common denominator relationships with our spouse, spouses or other loved ones. What if you found out that I took no effort to get to know my wife? What if I told you, I know she's a woman, I know she's not my sister, I know she's a Christian, That's good enough for me. Getting to know her more might just lead to complications. You know, something awkward might come up. Something that makes us incompatible. The less I know, the better. Seriously, you would never do that. You would never do that with your spouse. You would never do that with anyone you love. Why would you do that with God? Maybe we would do that because we just don't care. Or maybe... Just maybe we're fearful of what knowing him more will entail in our lives and afraid of the sin that may be confronted. Maybe we just believe that there is actually more joy to be found in other things. In the life of the church, we pursue deeper knowledge of God. As we pursue deeper knowledge of God together in the church, our fellowship becomes sweeter. This is just natural. People with shared interests and passions and longings find a camaraderie with each other. The same should be said of us as we fellowship together around the gospel. So when we get together, what do we talk about? Brothers and sisters, when you meet together, challenge each other with the word of God. Pray for each other. Ask for hard questions of one another. Don't be afraid to step away from what feels safe for the sake of the greater joy of your brother or sister in Christ. Want and desire their joy more than you desire your own comfort. Recognize that true unity, true fellowship, and true joy comes by going deeper in God together. Second point of application. Do we pursue the spreading of joy through proclaiming the good news of eternal life in Jesus in our spheres of influence and beyond? Do we pursue the spreading of joy through proclaiming the good news of eternal life in Jesus in our spheres of influence? If we are unable to consider evangelism as a pursuit of joy, then we have failed to grasp the word of life in a tangible, real way that John wishes that we would grasp it. The gospel is that news that is too good to be true, yet still true. And it needs to be clear that that is sunk into our hearts. Failure to share this good news either shows that we do not value the gospel as we should, or that we do not love people. Probably both, There is joy in making Christ known. You can hear it in John as he writes this letter. He's nearly ecstatic. There is joy in making Christ known. It may be difficult. It may be unwelcome. It might even be dangerous. But praise God, that did not stop Christ from going to the cross. Have you come to the place like John did? where in the face of danger, you say, I cannot but speak about that which I have seen and heard. This is not a a guy who, with legalistic um, motivation, is going out and telling others the gospel. Well, the Great Commission says I got to go, so I got to go and I got to tell people. No, this is somebody who has seen something, who has encountered something so life-altering so earth-shattering that he cannot help but do it, no matter what the cost. If we have fellowship with God, we are called to testify. And 1 John 5:11 tells us that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Brothers and sisters, unbelieving friends, That which was from the beginning, the word that created and sustains all things, has been made manifest in Christ. The eternal life, which was so far away, has come to us in the incarnate Son of God. Apart from the word appearing, we would have no fellowship with God. And apart from the word proclaimed, we would have no true fellowship with one another. Hold fast to that testimony that God has given us in His Son. And so preserve our fellowship with each other, unleashing full and lasting joy. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You that when we were cut off from fellowship with You because of sin, cut off from the tree of life, you sent your son so that we could be reconciled to you. I pray, God, that our fellowship would be established around the gospel message and that with joy we would grow in unity as we go deeper in the knowledge of it together. May our joy overflow into an excitement to share this word of life with all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.